Good evening, y'all. Will you uh, please welcome a friend of us all from um, Strange Brew, the top 2% music podcast in the world. Hey. And record collector, <laughs> contributor, a friend of us all, Mr. Jason Barnard. Hey. And a, a special surprise guest, um, David P. Allen. And. M. Allen. M. That's a good one. David M. Allen as well. P. Allen. Um, The engineer on this album, also producer of Cure, Sisters of Mercy, Depeche Mode, Mission, (laughs) Nina, Cherry, and um, a gentleman who I said, how how shall I introduce this? I'll just call me Ian. So here's just Ian. Over to you, Jason. Welcome, everyone. Are you wanting to do a, yeah, a musical to do interlude? A little musical Dave? interlude before we start, right? Oh, dear. Yeah. That's actually the machine that that was that was done on as well. Well, not that exact one, but that <laughs> machine, Casio. Yeah. And on the way to the studio, I went to a music shop and bought one of these when we were doing the dare sessions. Because I went into the music shop and I went, you oh, know, that's good. It's got a calculator in it. (laughs) So I took it to the studio and I walked in about 11 o'clock in the morning and showed the producer, Martin Russian. I said, look at this, look at what I got here, Martin. It's brilliant. It's got all these sounds. It's got a calculator in it. It's amazing. And he just paid me, because he never used to really like paying me. (laughs) He paid me after about two months of not being paid. And he said, oh, you've become nouveau riche. I'm paying you too much. Yeah. So... That really put me back in my place. An hour later, Philip Oakey walked in and he went, Hey, look what I bought. <laughs> <laughs> and he was already nouveau rich. So yeah. that, 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 and this is also the flute sound, the flute sound yeah. on Open Your Heart. It is, that's right, yeah. yeah. Which I can't play because I haven't had months to practice, but it's, that was fantasy. That's, I, that's uh, the start of I Am The Law, you know, get Carter. This is... That's right, yeah. So it weren't all programmed. Yeah, no. <laughs> Was it? No, and it wasn't all really expensive no. gear. No. So these all these myths. Yeah. All these myths and misses. Yeah. Sorry, Jason. <laughs> that's my music. That's... That's probably it for the evening. Yeah. <laughs> what an intro. What an yeah. intro. Uh, may, maybe it's good... Uh, you want to say something, Ian? No, I was just uh, suggesting you got on with it. <laughs> before Dave starts doing something else. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe we, we'll start in terms of that, that build-up to Dare and, and you, you know how you come to be involved, ultimately. Um, and you were both in, in groups uh, before um, you, know, you were worked with or are in the human league so i mean firstly ian so you 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 were in a band before 
and was it Graf? Yeah. But you'd also yeah. seen the Human League in their first incarnation at the, one of their early gigs as well. The very first, I was um, a student at the Salter Lane Art College in Sheffield, which is where they did their first ever show. There was a couple of friends of mine did did the um, the visuals for that show. They set up TV monitors with video feedback and stuff, and yeah, it was the first show. Yeah, they just put the tape machine had most of the stuff in the middle of the stage, two synthesizers, and Philip um, being utterly terrified. You know, I mean, he's like knuckles were white holding the <laughs> mic stand. He'd never sung before in front of an audience. It's, yeah, brave thing to do. He's much better these days. We saw him in He's had a bit more practice, down. hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. Dave, you, you're, you're in, you actually start, first worked with Martin Russian when you were in a, in the, a band yourself? Yeah, I was. And uh, just on seeing the original Human League, I saw the original Human League at the Nashville Rooms in uh, Kensington's, Kensington, which was like a kind of small club. Twice the size of this. Small club, big pub. Small club, big pub. Um, uh, the night David Bowie came down to see them, and uh, and they were awesome. And Phil was absolutely fantastic. I, mean, I just remember it as just being an amazing night, not really particularly because of David Bowie, who came here with his big minders. It was really quite funny. It was like one of those things where everyone starts, they don't watch the band, they watch the famous person who's just walked in. And, yeah, I was in a band before... And I did an album with Martin um, in mm, uh, nineteen eighty, um, and the last track that we did on the album, we used uh, uh, a System Seven Hundred, um, which basically I sort of said, "Well, we're doing all these old songs, and it's nineteen seventy nine, nineteen eighty, and we had these songs for two years." I said, "It would be really nice if we could do something experimental." And he said, yeah, yeah, that'd be a great idea, Dave. Uh, what? And I said, well, what's that thing there? He says, System 700. I said, let's use that. I didn't know what it was. And uh, it had this funny little keyboard thing next to it that looked like a massive calculator. And uh, that's the first time he'd used it. He'd bought it, but because all the bands he kind of worked with were all punk bands like Stranglers, Buzzcocks and the rest of it. He wasn't getting offered anything like that. He kind of thought it was the future because he was a bit of a futurist, fantasist. And uh, so that was the first time he'd used it. So we kind of started from the running from the ground together, both kind of trying to read the manual and puzzle out how it was so even though he was really massively experienced and he was the producer yada yada and i was the bass player in the band we were at sort of ground zero and this was about a year before the league yeah kind of like nine ten months before we ended up working together in the union league so kind of the whole synthesizer thing went back like nearly a year before for me and my brief for him for this track is I wanted to do punk mix with Michael Jackson because I really love the Destiny album by Michael Jackson. So it was kind of punk and that type of funk. So even though I was a punk, I was also into funk. And that's how I kind of ended up knowing Martin Russian and working with him. He split my band up. I split the band up. It split the band up because I went down an electronic direction and the guy I was in a band with who was my best friend 
just thought it was crap and he wanted to carry on going down the punk direction. Um, so I ended up being kind of a free agent. Well, I was sacked, you know, basically I had nowhere to go. And Martin was saying he would give me a deal as a solo artist. Um, so kind of this is how I kind of got involved with the genetic studio setup and how in the end I ended up in, being involved, being his assistant and working on the Human League, if that's not going on too much. <laughs> so, so Ian, you, you first played or assisted the Human League when they were in live, is that right? Yeah, the original band. Had yeah, the original. Sp- split up. Right. Martin and Ian went to be the Heaven 17. Um, Philip and Adrian took the name the Human League, which meant they got all the contractual commitments that went with that, which included going on tour around Europe. And Martin and Ian would have been the keyboard players, so they needed someone to... They, they played with one hand, I could play with two, you see. So, <laughs> so that they, they, got, they got two for the price of one with me. And um, so, yeah, learnt up the songs. And um, actually, Philip... He asked me, I had a girlfriend at the time who shared the house with him, and he asked me if I knew of a keyboard player who could program analog synths. And I said, well, I'll think about it, you know, I'll ask around. But actually, there was only one person in Sheffield that fitted that. Um, so I saw him a couple of days later and said, uh, I've had no luck, but if you're really struggling, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Yeah. So you weren't you weren't a full member in the live setup. No, no, I just was hired to go for I think it was three weeks: Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, Austria. Good fun. So, in terms of the the groundwork for Dare, when did you come kind of in, into the band on a full time basis then? Well, during that tour, I was, you know, I'd been talking with Philip about his next commitment, which was to deliver another album. And I said, well, I, you know, I knew where their studio was, so I said, if I'm passing, I'll knock on the door and see if you if can help out in any way. So which and then we did. I think I think Sound of the Crowd was the first first thing I put together with, with Philip, yeah. Had, had you produced much music before in terms of kind of crafting a, a track? Yes, the, the graph thing, we, although we came from an experimental notion, we were m- much more interested in messing around with tape machines and, and the, the electronics. Um, uh, we'd realised that if you wanted to play to an audience, you needed to organise all that into something. So the, the songwriting had begun there. So when I was doing Sound of the Crowd with Philip, he wanted to know why um, I changed from doing that there to then making it different for eight bars and then go back to sort of, well, I'm organising it into verses and choruses, which was a new concept to him. Because Martin and Ian, they basically wrote instrumentals and he would think of something to sing over the top. So both Joe Callis and myself, we were much more into structuring as songs and um, I also remember with Sound of the Crowd I was programming a white noise generator like a hiss sound which to me was like a hi-hat you know drum on a, on a drum kit 
And Philip asked me what the hell I was doing. What's that? And I said, it's a hi-hat sound. And he had no idea what a hi-hat was. So, and that's the great thing about the Human League, I think, was they came from not knowing. They didn't play instruments. They didn't know the components of a drum kit. You know, They didn't know how to play keyboards or guitars. But by programming synths, they could get something out. And uh, there was a kind of very... I'm loath to say it was naive, but there was a charm about it that comes from, you know, not having any real experience or professional background to what you're doing. Am I banging on too much here? No, not no, at all. Okay, <laughs> right, right. So, so while you and the Human League were in Sheffield... Um, yes, yeah. So Dave was at Genetic Studios in mm. Reading, kind of laying yeah. the groundwork, and were you setting up the studio? Then? Oh, no, it's... Um, <clears throat> band split up. Uh, I was supposed to be doing being a solo act, so I did a solo track with Martin in kind of like September 80, uh, which was all synths, synth drums and System 700 and all the kind of... And all this, this, whatever synths he had there, it's called The Sound of Muzak, and it's out now. <laughs> so uh, watch out for it. Um, and then he had to go to America to do a bread and butter job, uh, which is basically you go and work somewhere and you earn money and, uh, you know, there's some rock band. Actually, he worked in Power Station, New York, um, which is where Let's Dance was done. Um, and... In that little period, he said I could come up and have some demo time. So I came up, and he said that basically the maintenance guy could show me, you know, get me going and show me how the desk worked and how to put a tape on and all this crap. Um, and uh, the day I arrived, he, the maintenance engineer left through non-payment of wages. <laughs> um, I don't really hope this is not going to be a theme. <laughs> no, Non-payment. Non uh, anyway, he you're, left. You're making it a theme, Dave. This is this is how you got employed Whoa. by. This is how you got employed Am by I? Martin. <laughs> Am I? He's like, this Dave Allen. He'll he'll work for nothing. <laughs> Bang! <laughs> All these years later. Anyway, so basically, he 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 got the tin tack, and uh, I then proceeded to work out how to use all this stuff. I'd already done a single with Martin. We'd done an album together, so I kind of knew my way around the studio a bit, but I was really kind of musically dumb. Uh, but what was I to do? I had ten days, and I either did something, and these were the demos, and these were my future, or I had nothing, because I had no band. I had a record company who wouldn't let me go. And I made six pieces four fully realised songs and two other pieces and then when he came back I played them to him and uh, he went oh well, well well done and then a couple of weeks later rang me up and asked me if I wanted to go and work there which I said yes now I didn't know at the time but he had already and in fact I was sleeping in the studio but in the house Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks was there because he'd already managed to split up the Buzzcocks and he had Pete Shelley angled in as a solo artist. It wasn't exactly being kind of quite straight. Um, and I suppose he gave me a job because I'd actually produced, like, on my own, written, sung, done all the programming, 
yada yada. In fact, it's my new album that's coming, that's come out, came out on Record Store Day. So it ain't that bad. I mean, I haven't remixed it or anything. It's off a quarter-inch tape that I did at the time. And he must have thought, well, he'll be quite useful. He'll be more useful doing that. Um, and so he, immediately after that, so that's kind of around January, he did Homo Sapien with Pete Shelley, and which I kind of went up to a couple of the sessions, and that was using all the same type of equipment. And um, then he did Sound of the Crowd, which I also came along mm. to. Were you there? I came a couple of days, oh, yeah. I don't remember you being there. But... <laughs> no, I know. But I don't remember you being there because no. you probably weren't there. <laughs> no, because I probably came up when he was mixing it or something or... I mean, you know... Yeah, I might have been in the loo or something. Like you might have been. It yeah. might have been that briefer. But I do remember going up there because it's quite funny because I had this relationship with Martin where we were like, you know, evangelists for all this sort of stuff. And, and I just thought it was blinding what he was doing. The Pete Shelley stuff was great because it was synths and 12-string acoustic guitar, which was really quite a unique kind of mixture. Of course, the 12-string guitar covered a whole load of bases of pad. You didn't need keyboards. You didn't need so many keyboards. You could just do a B line, an interesting synth line, and the rest was filled with Pete singing and, and the big fat guitar. Um, so then when and genetic was also like not finished so the control room was finished but the rest of the actual area wasn't finished uh the you know the playing area so you couldn't open it properly as a commercial studio but you could work in the control room that was that was finished in fact when we were doing pinpoint we'd done all the album in london and he said you must come out to my studio it's amazing as if it was amazing and when we got there he didn't have a roof on it and we were, in, we were in this little bungalow and we kind of went, where's this amazing studio? And he went, well, it's up the hill. And he took us around it and it was like, he, you know, it's like one of those guys who can see it all, even though it's not there. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing when it got done, but uh, Martin was a little bit like that. And um, anyway, he offered me a job. So around kind of the April, I started working there. And when it came to start, when Dare properly started, the actual album got the go, got the go ahead from probably yeah. Simon Draper because yeah, he was the only person at Virgin knew anything yeah. about music. Richard Branson still doesn't really know anything about anything mm. other than to stick himself at the front of everything. Um, and trust me, I've got some stories about that. It's un- unbelievable. That bloke, it's unbelievable. I mean, if there was somebody, you know, Christ, he'd be th- he'd be with you. <laughs> he'd, be, he'd be with you, that camera, that he'd be just there. <laughs> um, anyway, Simon Draper, yeah, because he yeah. kind of he did get music that boat. Yeah, he did. Yeah. yeah. So that's how I ended up working at Genetic, um, and because uh, I was really useful, and because I, I, I could work all the machinery. He was. He honestly, you know? honestly, he was useful <laughs> most of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm. The sound of the crowd, it, you know, it's a track that keeps coming up and, and seemed to set the way for Dare. And um, mm. Ian, you were involved or certainly started coming out with lyrics for that as well? Well, I had um, an, the idea for how the vocals should go melodically and structurally. And I had to demonstrate that to, to Philip. 
and it's it really sounds terrible if you explain something by going la 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 you know it just sounds so i just wrote some stream of consciousness stuff just to have some words and um surprisingly he kept them i mean they don't make much sense at all but then he wrote a chorus section which does make a bit of sense so yeah and that was and then virgin um decided that should be the next single um so there was a bit of a conversation in the studio in Sheffield about, because, um, you know, seven-inch vinyl, you had to put something on the flip side. You had to have a B-side. So the question was, you know, what, what to do about that? And we were listening to, through to tapes of rough ideas we'd done. And I was a big fan at the time of dub reggae, so I suggested we do a dub version of the A-side for the B-side. So take the vocals off, do an instrumental, mess around with the studio gear, you know, with the repeat echoes and all that sort of stuff. But um, Adrian said something about how much he hated reggae, <laughs> and that was that. And Philip said nothing. He, he bit his lip and twiddled his fingers and went off to put the kettle on to make more tea and said absolutely nothing. So I thought that's the end of that. But then when we were doing the version with Martin Russian, of course, he had the same question. Yeah, all right, lads, what are we going to do for a B-side? At which point Philip said, well, we've decided we're going to do a dub version of the A-side. <laughs> and that's actually the beginning of that, uh, the whole thing of doing oh, the, these, what? That's interesting. Yeah, well, that, that's what it was. But that was the beginning nice. of... Then when Dave was on board, of course, we would then pretty much... I think most songs we would do an instrumental version. Yeah. So then with Love Action, and Joe Callis had done a thing called Hard Times, which was designated as a B-side, that coincided with this new 12-inch format. So we did remixes of Love Action and Hard mm. Times as, as extended versions on that. I think... I think now, we did. We now, did. Martin always told me that he had that idea. <laughs> uh, because he said, quote, Me and Pete Shelley were in a club in New York and we went to see Grandmaster Flash and, this, and the wheels are steel. And I said to Pete, I can do all that scratching with tape. No, well, when you it see, was, it's really yeah. inter- this is really interesting. It's always really good doing it with two people who are in the same place at the same time because you find out. He wow. no, he definitely heard. Well, well he definitely heard all the, the Grandmaster <laughs> Flash stuff, yeah, and he was bowled over. Have, yeah. So that's the thing is when Philip mm. said we should do an instrumental yeah. for the B side. That's why Martin's face lit up. Because that was yeah, cool. yeah, that's exactly course, yeah. what he wanted to be yeah, doing. Yeah, no, it's always good when the you producer know, and the artist want to do know, the a, same thing. It's a good way to give a, a, a good workout on the new studio. Yeah, as well, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. So, Ian, when, when did uh, Susan and Joanne come into the picture? <laughs> and do you remember that moment when they came? Well, they did or? that tour. Oh, that did first they? tour right. that I did. Yeah, they um, sort of sang backing vocals there and. Um, they were they were on Sound of the Crowd, but I think we actually recorded them in Sheffield, and then took like a half inch tape or something. Yeah. Of Girls on one that. side, track on the other side. Yeah, that's what. I mean. And um, they started really 
turning up at the studio um, after they'd done their A-levels. So that would have been end of June sort of time. They were still at school when we started mm. recording it, yeah. I was thinking, we were talking about this in the garden, I was saying how amazing it was because what a pair of bollocks those two girls had. <laughs> I mean, they were 17... Guy comes up to him in a disco and says, do you want to be in a pop band? And they go, yeah or no. They ask their mum and dad. They go on tour to Germany at 17. They've got no experience at singing or being on stage. I mean, you can't get a better example of you have to say yes. When the door of opportunity knocks, you just say yes. And they really do deserve everything just from that. Yeah. So yeah. much fucking courage to really do that. Yeah. Um, because, and their mums and dads too, you know, to sort of go, you know, go for it. When's this ever going to happen again? And really, there, it wasn't like kind of, you know, the human, they weren't big. It wasn't, it was like sort of, this will be a fantastic experience for you girls. And they said, yes. I mean, I don't know. I just sort of think that really, really impressive courage to do that, really. Yeah, and a million miles away from the sort of X Factor thing, you know, that yeah, you didn't absolutely. have that then. And uh, the idea of, you know, two girls who've never done this before going off with a bunch of blokes and some synthesizers at the age of <laughs> 17, like, very courageous. Yeah, anyway. We never laid a finger on them, didn't we? I must have disappointed them. <laughs> Possibly, sorry, sorry. Dave, I wonder if it's worth kind of when you think now in terms of um, synth music and you've got a, a laptop or whatever, the process seems so simple. But in those times where you've got different equipment and tapes and whatever, I, am I right? At times, it could be quite a laborious process, kind of piecing together the, the tracks. Yeah, I don't think it was. To be honest, I don't think it's any more laborious. The laborious thing now is choice. You know, mm. like it is with most things in mm. modern life. Yeah. You've just got endless choice. I mean, if you've got something working in the old days, the moment it worked, you just went, Ew, thank you, print, move on. So, yeah, it was laborious, but we never went back. No. It wasn't like we had to recall anything. No. Um, so although it would take ages to program things up, uh, once they were in, they were in. And you could do all sorts of kind of interesting things with them once they were actually in the machine. You could kind of save it. You could save it onto cassette, but we never did because we never had time and we weren't going to go back. And it wasn't... The modus operandi of the day was you got a guitar sound, you put it down, you did a, got a synth sound, you put it down, and then you moved on. So what happens nowadays, everything's kind of still virtual for quite a long period of time. People don't print stuff, and it's instantly recordable. And, um, and there's 58 million... Well, for instance, in the old days, if you wanted to make a wobbly bass sound, you had to make a wobbly bass sound. Nowadays, you can type in wobbly bass and a wobbly <laughs> bass sound comes up. Pro probably 20 of them. Yeah. And you have to listen to 20 of them, which is just like enormously laborious in a different kind of way. So, yes, it was laborious, but it was sort of laborious once. Yeah, yeah. So, Ian, yeah. how did the, did the tracks evolve at all from when you from Sheffield to Reading, uh, did they evolve much further in the studio? Some did, um, others not so much. I mean, I've got some 
um, cassette tapes of the sketches we did in Sheffield and things like, I mean, if, if the difference between the, the rough idea for Sound of the Crowd or Love Action. The basic idea of what the sounds should be are there, the structures are there. The major difference is Martin and, and Dave here just put things down onto tape so much better than, than we could, you know, much better recording facility. They knew much more about engineering than we did, and they just gave it a gloss and a punch that we didn't know how to do. So, Dave, what sort of equipment was in the studio and what, what did the band bring? How... What was the sound? Oh, I don't know. What did you bring? The, the you bought a call. We got a list, list on, on that album sleeve. There, there's oh, a list. <laughs> there's about five or six things that we had, and then Martin had this System 700 that Dave was talking about. Casio M10. <laughs> yeah. VL2. We've had that one. Yeah. No, that's the VL1. Oh, that's a VL1. That's VL1. Yeah. Don't know what the Casio M10 is. Korg 770. That, that was, was my favourite one, yeah. yes. Korg Delta, that was mine. Yeah, yeah. Lin LM1, we'll get onto that in a minute. Yeah. Jupiter 4. That Jupiter 4, that was did all the chords for yeah. Love Action on that, yeah. Yeah. Roland MCA, Roland System 700, that was in the studio. Yeah. Yamaha CS15. Yeah. Bills. It's a monophonic one, that was Philips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did the cat sound on that. He did the cat sound on yeah. that, yes. And on Love Action. Mm. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and obviously the studio had a desk and a tape machine and it had a Simmons drum pad thing. It also had um, a vocoder and big, big play echo. A lot of digital and, delay lines, vocoder. Yeah, an AMS digital stuff. delay line, vocoder, all kind of general studio all stuff. All the usual mics, stuff, yeah. compressors and key, this, key gates. And this mic is yeah. an SM58. And this is what Phil, not this mic, but this type of mic, is what Phil sung Love Action on. He did all the vocals on, on an SM58. In, yeah. in the loo. Yeah, I know, I took a photo. He wouldn't, he wouldn't sing in the, in the studio, you've got that In glass. the ladies' so if, loo. If, if, if in the norm, Why? Normally, everyone's Why looking ladies? at you through the glass, which he, couldn't, he didn't know what to do. Mirror. <laughs> I took a photo. I took a Polaroid. Because it became so funny, like, that he'd go off into the loo. I mean, it's totally cool wherever <laughs> someone wants to sing, and it was good. The loo wasn't... It wasn't in the studio, you see. It was in the kind of hall. And uh, it had a kind of window that opened up, like toilets often do. And I managed to sneak out, get a ladder, <laughs> and put the, put, the cam- put, the, put the Polaroid in and take a photo, right? It was very naughty of me to do, I suppose, but yeah. I did give him the photo, which yeah. I sort of regret, but, you know... I, did you not gonna... um, pull the chain? Didn't you flush the loo when he was singing or something? Well, it was probably a bit of that, yeah. Mm. I probably noticed that the microphone was... Well, the thing is, you can take all this shit too seriously. <laughs> no, you can, because, you know, everyone's all kind of antsy, their whole careers are on the line, and, and humour's... Humour's sort of quite useful sometimes mm-hmm. to uh, break that tension. Yeah, yeah. So, Ian, I've read that there was resistance from in the band in terms of releasing Don't You Want Me as a single, is that correct? There, well, yes, there was. Um, I think when we were working on it before 
Before it actually had any lyrics or vocals, uh, Philip was asking me, we were working on it, and Philip was, as usual, we were in the kitchen making tea, and uh, he asked me what I thought about it, and I thought, well, I really like it. I think, I think it's probably the best thing there. And um, um, he, he thought it was too complex. And it is complex. It's a complex... Of all the songs there, it's the most complicated in terms of structure and arrangement. But I said I really liked it. And then after he'd gone and written these these words about uh, cocktail bar waitresses and stuff, I thought, now he's completely ruined it now. It sounded really, it sounded really good up until then, and now, it's, now it sounds really cheesy. But I did say, if the object of the exercise is to have hit singles, that's the best one. Philip completely disagreed. They, and he and Joanne and Susan also thought that it would damage album sales because the al- we'd had three hit singles and then the album was about to come out and they were thinking, well, what, what, you know, if people have only got limited money to spend, they might spend it on the single and not the album. Of course, it was the other way around. The single being a hit sold the album. Um, thing is, I think thing that, is... Yeah, that was done on a weekend where you you guys all went away apart from Joe because Joe didn't have anywhere to live. That's right, yeah, yeah. So yeah. basically from Friday, Saturday, Sunday, mm. me, Martin and Joe, yeah, Joe, Martin and I, Martin, mm. Joe, I, whatever yeah. way you want to do it, we pretty knocked that, knocked that I up. I think so, and the same with seconds as well. It was, that was you, yeah, Joe and Martin. No, it wasn't mine. You and Joe. It was okay. me and Joe, yeah. And... Um, <laughs> So kind of when the band came to hear that, this is why I think when Philip and uh, Ian heard it, it was kind of like already fully realised. Yes, no, that's true. The line had been done and kind of all the dun-duns and all that was done. I mean... Well, Joe had done a version of it up in Sheffield. Yeah, So I was familiar with the basics of it. Oh, right, okay, yeah. 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 So you'd kind of already greenlit it before. Yeah, so it started with Adrian Mm. had this... Tune that went. Adrian gets fuck all time in this, you know. (laughs) Well, here's how "Don't You Want Me" started. Adrian going. Said it's great, isn't it? It's got something like that, which Joe turned into a syncopated. Then wrote a bass line, and then it built it from there, and then you took it down to you guys at Genetic. Yeah. Yeah. But well, just, a, Adrian, Adrian gets a third of the royalties. For it. Does he? Fantastic. That's fantastic. Because <laughs> no, one of the things that I think happened at the end of there is that um, it sort of came out and it was really enormous. In some ways, like, Don't You Want Me, really... I mean, it, it, it's kind of such an enormous record. You can see that it's going to really fuck people up for the future because how the fuck do you follow that up? Um, but... When you think about kind of sort of the combination of people, you have two completely raw girls, Philip, he got two, he's got a band that's split up, he's lost the two musicians, so what he does is he gets a bass player who can write songs and a guitarist that can write songs. Joe had been in the Rizillos. I mm. mean, that didn't make any sense. He got a punk rock producer. And it didn't make sense on paper. And he didn't no. sack no. the guy who did the slides. No. Right? So he didn't sack the non-musical member. So when it had a fantastic look and it had all this fresh energy, 
And obviously he's a co-songwriter and obviously an amazing singer. And then when it came out, I think there was a palpable sense that... I can wrap this up quickly. No, palpable, I was just No, palpable sense that this was all some sort of programmed record. It was all done by machines and this was all the future and it was all done by machines and... Martin Russian took a lot of credit for stuff that he really probably shouldn't have taken credit. Or he was very good and all the rest of it, but how could he have done it without all of the rest of that stuff? I mean, he couldn't have done. And I think that has caused an over an over concentration on this is the future of music because it had no real instruments on it. Hmm. So the press loved it and he loved it and he kind of went down this route. I mean, he said many things that weren't true, like you could program the Casio, the VL tone, when it was just pl played by hand, and the lots of the record was actually played by hand. I mean, he said, for instance, it was digitally recorded, and it wasn't. It was recorded on tape, um, and um, and that caused problems further down the line. Hmm. I think, having listened to Ian's podcast and then thought about this quite a lot over the last sort of three months. Right, Dave. Well said. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's it. Well, no, no and that's why, no, that's no, why you were think... kind of all a bit... You sort of walked into Don't You Want Me and there was this big kind of Abba-esque sort of song that wasn't like Love Action and wasn't like a kind of rootsy human. Yeah. You'd, you'd kind of drifted quite a long way. It was an experiment, really. I mean, I came yeah. from an experimental background. And this, mm. on paper, it made no sense. You see, a, a baritone lead vocalist, two girls, no, no thing. Yeah. It's a synth band, so you get two guitarists in, and you get a producer who's known for the Stranglers and the Buzz. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It makes no sense, and that's how happy accidents happen. Yeah. And then, from then on, it's no longer an experiment. It's like a record company saying, can we have more of that? Mm. There's no adventure in doing that. And but it was the beginning of the end, wasn't it? Really, as soon as it was successful, that was it. Mm, maybe, yeah. Can we go and get some more beer now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's time to have a break and uh, before we listen to the album. After listening to the record, we had a post-album discussion and a bit of a Q and A. The one I remember is going to Paris. Yeah, okay. So after after Dare and it was already massive and all the rest of it, Human League played Paris. So Martin said, Well, as a bonus, I'll pay for you to go to Paris. So we go to Paris, me and my then partner, and uh We'll get on the plane, we fly to Paris, we meet with the band. We go in in a coach and everyone's everyone in Paris is, yay, we did Bercy or somewhere like that. Some really big gig. It was a big place, I can't remember mm. what it was called though. But you don't remember the gig? I know why you don't remember the gig. Do you? Well, all the tapes went weird. Tapes? We were playing yeah. live. <laughs> no, it all went it all went really bizarre and wrong. 
It's news to me, Jason. <laughs> what, what went wrong? It did out the front. Sorry? It did out the front. Then we ended yeah. up in that gay club. <laughs> <laughs> the French, the French record company, because Phil wore makeup and had pierced nipples. You sure this wasn't the, this wasn't with the Cure? No, 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 that was another different, <laughs> horrific night in Paris. <laughs> but do you not remember um, the... No, I don't remember We went that, to some no. sort of funny club which had these enormous male torsos. No, you... you no, no. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'd, 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 yeah, because Phil and the girls were absolutely outraged by this, because I can remember I had Oh, beef, they may have gone, they may have gone. I had Beef Wellington. <laughs> <laughs> I I had a, 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 a girl I knew and her boyfriend who were students when I was a student in Sheffield. Yeah. And they lived in Paris, and after the show, I went off with them. Ah. Um, to a Good crowd work. Of, to a crowd of West Indians oh, where right, we okay. did. Um, I was getting my ass felt up in the toilet <laughs> <laughs> in a gay in a gay club. <laughs> Best thing happened. Anyway, we we got back to the hotel. Massively drunk, woke up what I thought really late, rushed off to the airport, came back totally separately. And when I got back, Martin charged charged me for the hotel room. <laughs> so I made an invoice for rental of the Korg. Oh right, okay. Yeah, yeah. On Dare. Right. Well, Dare and a Madness track because it was also used on Our House or something. That was exactly the same price as the hotel. <laughs> well, yeah, no. well done. <laughs> and really but did, did, did you own the Korg? It wasn't someone else's Korg that no, you invoiced no, no, for. No, no, okay. No, I only sold it last year. Oh, right, yeah. okay. <laughs> to a friend so, of mine. So we abandon Q and A and just let these two ramble <laughs> on. Well, anyway, just live the, live the live thing because it was quite complicated. Initially, I think getting all those machines working live. Yeah, there was some some strange technical stuff going. We had that Lin drum computer, which was programmed up, and but that could also send signals out to to uh, control elements of some synthesizers. So um, yeah, to um, to control the ADS, ADSRs and filters and stuff, and occasionally you'd have someone in the road crew who'd forget to plug something in <laughs> and instead of pressing a key and it going bub, 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 it'd just go and you'd have to play it like that which is not easy, triplets <laughs> with two fingers but yeah um, you say about the Paris show I mean mm. you must remember that we were doing lots and lots of shows at that yeah, time and the hotel rooms and theatres by and large all look the same so Sorry, Life on the road, Ian. Yeah. I don't know anything about that. It was a one-off for me. <laughs> what was the question? Well, we started trying to talk about implementing... The oh, record, that's right. Uh, yeah. ...there yeah. as a live yeah. sort of thing, and I was giving my feedback as being one of the punters. <laughs> Yeah, this is, this is a sort of Ronnie Corbett version of it's the brilliant. Q&A. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, like, the whole thing is if the stage is all working, I think all, the monitors, all the monitors on the stage for the band, if the front of house PA goes off, it's not any different for them. Um, Ian. Yeah? Um, when Dare was recorded, I was 14 years old. Yeah. I lived... I was. I lived in a little village, so... 
Dare and some other albums was like the Bible for what it was like in the big wide world. Mm. Because I couldn't go anywhere apart from the youth club. Um, so I started um, wearing heavy eye makeup, cutting my hair like Phil's, getting dressed up. Can I ask you about the sound of the crowd? Because for me, that is the soundtrack. When I was able to go out, can I ask you about the sound of the crowd? Can you tell me how that was written, why it was written and what it's written about? Because when I started going out, to me, when I listen to the lyrics of that now, I'm 55 years old, <laughs> I can imagine going back out, listening to that song, and you and the Human League telling me what it was like to go out on a night and how exciting that would be. Because at 14 years old, I could only imagine what that was like. So can you tell me what that song was about, please? Well, like you, I've from the countryside, always grew, growing up in little villages, and Sheffield was the first time I'd ever lived in a big city. So it was the first time I'd ever been part of a scene, you know, where there were clubs and bands playing. And at that time, this was the beginnings in this sort of post-punk new wave, it was the beginnings of even the boys starting to, you know, wear eyeliner and mascara and colouring our hair... Uh, so you can imagine from a, 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 a little chat from the countryside, yeah. it was a little bit mind-blowing. And I th that was, as I was saying to Jason, the, the, those lyrics were a stream-of-consciousness thing, but I'm sure that it was that thing of that relatively novel experience of being in a big city and there being nightclubs and bands playing. And I, there are references in there, which is a thing to do with hair and... Makeup, you know. I know it's not all sort of um, a nice organised narrative, but I think subconsciously that's that's what it was about. Thank you. Anybody else? Come on, Steve Rawlinson. Mr. Rovin Mike. Mm. Revving, Mark. yeah. My question yeah. is just on the recording of the vocals on the album. Uh, I'm wondering what it done in one hit or what it split up, uh, and also were there any specific effects that were used on the vocals? Uh, and as the backing, what it double tracked? Here's your engineer. Uh, quick run through Phil sang on this, this mic, not, not particularly this one, like I was saying earlier on. Generally one or two takes, one or two takes, then put together into one, best one, maybe three maximum, but generally, and some of them, like I am, the law is one take, I remember, basically, maybe I remember, I don't know, but I think that. Um, effects, bit of reverb, um, automatic double tracking, which is like sort of having a, uh, the same thing, but one slightly sharp, one slightly flat, so you get a kind of chorusing effect. The backing vocals, the girls' backing vocals were done mostly um, on one side of a quarter-inch tape with the backing track on the other. Then the quarter-inch tape would come up to the studio and we would fly it in, which is basically you line it up and then play the tape and record the vocals in sync, right, onto the um, multi back onto the multi-track. Um, backing vocals on Don't You Want Me a Mine Russian 
Cambridge Inn didn't know oh, didn't <laughs> until tonight. Um, uh, hard Times uh, is a very long track. So there was, <laughs> and on the um, quarter inch tape, when you soloed the girls' vocals, you could hear Joe poking them. He poked them with a the drumstick when they had to go, Hard Times. And you could hear him go, Get off, John, get off. <laughs> it's like that, it's really funny. So that's backing vocals. Um Suzanne did her vocal up the up in the studio. Could do it, it's yeah. the only one I remember them doing there. Yeah, I think we'd recorded most of the backings in, in And that was probably I don't know, a couple of hours. Yeah. I mean the song's the wrong key for her because it's a key it's in the key for Phil. Because it probably was never designed to be a duet in that way, um, and and she did a brilliant job because mm. it's, it's that's why it's so low, you know. I was working, it's a bit low for a girl, um, so that's kind of backing vocals, really. There weren't a lot to do. I mean, you couldn't auto tune them in those days. But Philip, Philip's timing was and pitching was always oh, he's very good. Fantastic, very singer. good. Yeah. Fantastic singer. Yeah. yeah, that really came home to me when both me and Dave went to see them live at Wembley Arena, wasn't mm. it, on, in December? Yeah. And he was in very fine voice. Oh, Absolutely, his timing and pitching, very, very. He's good. learned how to walk now. Yes, he has. He's, he used to walk like a duck with his feet pointing outwards. And like, well, that, that's the other reason for getting the girls because. A lot of male singers can't dance. Um, that's why they do all this stuff with the mic stand, you know, like Rod Stewart and uh, and uh, Freddie Mercury with his kind of... They all invented some kind of particular way of... I mean, Johnny Rotten's this one, leaning on it. Um, but Phil was always, always kind of like pinned to the spot. So having the two girls doing the movement was just a really brilliant pop manoeuvre from the point of view of making it a visual spectra- spectacle. That's yeah. kind of what I think about it, anyway. And now it's different. He's the one moving around the stage, and they're sort of rooted to the spot, don't they? How strange it is. Isn't that strange, yeah. Dave? Yes. <laughs> Very good. Thanks for that. I'm glad you mentioned the girls there, because we were in the bar the other day, and um, somebody... Sean Carter... We know Sean Carter, most of you don't. Sean said, uh, who's coming along then? So I told him, he says, I wish it were them two girls. (laughs) (laughs) Them two saucy girls. Them saucy girls. He called them saucy girls. And somebody said, who are you, Terry Thomas? (laughs) And then then somebody said, no, he's more like fucking Leslie Phillips. (laughs) 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 Um, You had a very good point. Are you going to mention this? Yeah, go on. Yeah. Yeah. This is Simon talking. Hello. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, it's a, Good <laughs> reference. Thanks. So it's just an observation rather than a question, but listening to Dare again, it doesn't sound like a patchwork of songs put together. I guess because the sound, you know, you get that whistling flute keep coming back mm-hmm. in and the bass and mm. the, those primal drums. Is that intentional? I don't think it's to its detriment at all that it's like got a limited like sound palette, but was that intentional? I it makes it yeah. sound like an album. I think it, I think it's sort of held together by a certain commonality of, of sounds. But I think musically, every song is very, very different. You know, I mean, something like 
um, you know, do or die and seconds are almost like musically opposite to each other. One's a very rhythmical, sort of funky or reggae-ish thing, and seconds is like it's like a punk song done on on synthesizers, you know. So I think musically they're very different, yeah. But I think what, you, what you're suggesting is that it's all somehow pulled together. I think that's Martin Martin's production techniques. And the fact we had quite a limited palette of synthesizers. Only, you know, what, four, four, four or five, five yeah. you know. And um, so that probably gives it more of a uniformity than the, the, the actual compositions would suggest, so. Yeah, I think I think the other the other thing about Dare is the drum sound because mm, I was saying yeah. that Sound of the Crowd, the original forty five, doesn't have that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, and that's because it's the Lindrum. Yeah, and um, linking those two things together was one of the crucial kind of things that made it sound like a real record rather than an electronic record. Because the Lindrum yeah. is actually real drum sounds digitised. Mm. Um, yeah, good point. Yeah. Mm. Mark, I believe you've got a question. First, an observation, uh, David. You have some fantastic socks on. Those people in the back of the room probably can't see that they say "fuck it," <laughs> uh, which reminds me. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the lovely eggs. But we're going to go and see the lovely eggs on Sunday in York, and they have a fantastic song called Fuck It, Oh Yeah. Anyway, but that's beside the point. <laughs> that is completely beside the point, because I wanted to ask you about um, love and dancing, and I know you, were, you alluded, it, alluded to it just now, but could you talk us through that? Because that's, for many people who went to clubs at the time yeah. and all the rest of the stuff... That's equally as important in some ways as dare. Yeah. Mm. Well, hmm. all of the tracks on dare are 120 BPM apart from Sound of the Crowd, which is 132 or 130. So 120 BPM is supposedly, theoretically, the tempo for dance, right? So cutting any of the tracks together was actually very easy to make them feel like they kind of went in a seamless kind of... There's no tempo jumps. So, for instance, side one of Dare, it's all 120 apart from Sound of the Crowd, and then it goes to Do or Die, yeah? Yeah. Side two is all 120 BPM. There are no tempo changes. So cutting a 12-inch... Cutting all the 12-inch versions together and doing all of that was actually really easy. That's why on Love and Dancing, Sound of the Crowd is the last track. So you get that kind of lift at the end of it. Um, we did it in two days. But some of the, a lot of the songs, the mixes had yeah, been the done mixes prior. have been done before. Said before, some of them were done as as B sides mm, and, yeah. and for twelve inch extended mixes. Um, but it was a matter for you and Martin of cutting them all together and doing some... Yeah, into a side ones. A and a side B. And yeah, I think that was Martin's yeah. idea because he was... because it, you know, it, was, it was also a really big record and he also sold loads of copies and it reused all this kind of material that we already had into something. Um, 
And so it was two days. I mean, I kind of remember it, but I remember specific bits. I think we did, we did a, a different uh, 12-inch for Love Action. Yeah, probably. And, um, and had to do some sort of... And we did one for seconds, uh, and we had to do kind of crossover bits to make the joins work from song to song. Um, but, I mean, it was two days. Because all the stuff was there, you know. And mm. I can't really remember any kind of conceptual stuff going on other than this was just a really brilliant commercial opportunity to sell the same stuff again. <laughs> well, that's what I think. Um, I mean, I know... You know, I mean, there's stuff you can kind of read um, which talk about it as a masterwork. But I just... But really, those two days for me, it was like a commercial kind of thing. I mean... I love doing all that stuff. I mean, it was one of those sort of things that to suddenly be, pre be presented. I mean, I'd been working with Martin for, like, as I say, for a year on electronic stuff, and it was like we thought it was going to be the future, and all of a sudden we had a fucking band that we could do it with. I mean, that was my impression of it. And we had a fantastic singer. We had, like, a great package. We had great songs, great musicians. You know, even if the parts were taken from the musician... Like, for instance, the bass line of um, Love Action. I mean, someone has to write that. You know, I someone has yeah, to... Yeah, but I did play it as well. <laughs> yeah, well, how, how did it end up being programmed then? It did you, wasn't. Did no, you I play it? it? I played it, yeah. Fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the chords. And yeah, the chords. Yeah. It's only the drums on Love Action that were programmed. Yeah, it's like yeah. seconds because Joe played yeah. the B line of seconds, yeah. which is just that long. And Love, Love Action, Philip did that cat, but he yeah. also did that percussion. We called yeah. it the milk bottles. They call it the did, milk bottles. But what we did was because Philip he, he can tap with two fingers on a keyboard, but it's quite a fast thing, so. We programmed the milk bottle sound, then turned the oscillators down an octave and ran the tape machine at half speed. So instead of oh, going, yeah. dig, 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 he was, do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah, do, yeah. Do. And then yeah. when he speeded it up, it sounded like those lovely clippy milk bottles. You see? Trade secrets. Now, I've got a really got a funny one about that because mm. I mixed a Cure song called Love Cats, which starts with. Cat sounds and milk bowls. Yeah, oh, there you go. And so there you are. Right. Thievery. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's always made me laugh because we called that sound milk bowls. Yeah. the chords. I'm talking about the percussion sound, the milk bottles. <laughs> yeah, you got the melody. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you're yeah. talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sometimes to... wonder, Dave. Yeah, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> there we go. Stick it outside late. if you want to. <laughs> Anybody else? Okay. Jason? Good to... Maybe just um, one final reflection, and that's just... Do you think the Martin Russian and, and that period that once he stopped working with the Human League after the Fascination EP, that some, something had, had gone, which you couldn't quite capture again, that combination of all you guys working together. I think, as I, as I said earlier, I, it was very much an experimental thing, the Dare album. And it, you, to repeat an experiment, it, you can't really. Once it's done, it's done. And there was a pressure on to do more of the same, 
And I think that's where it began to, where tensions began to come in. And I think that the, the Fascination EP, I think was, it was sounding great. And I think if we'd done a whole album with Martin Rushant in that same vein, it would have, it would have been good because we were already starting to experiment with some new things that were coming in. That was the beginnings of digital technology. And we were actually sampling things laying them onto the tape whatever the reasons for splitting up with Martin were, I'm never quite sure but I think that what we were beginning to do there was just to combine analogue synthesis, digital techniques and bringing in real instruments that was then ultimately done to perfection in a way by Trevor Horn, I think, with Frankie Goes to Hollywood, that says it doesn't matter what you're using Analog synths, digital synths, digital recording techniques, real instruments, everything. Um, and that was the next big leap for me, anyway, in, in terms of uh, embracing the technology that was available for, for people when it came to making music. So am I rabbiting on too much again? No, no brilliant. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fitting way to end in that it, it sort of book, bookmarks the album. So um, yeah. maybe it's time to, to give you guys a hand. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you.